This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Nightlight has partnered with Fan Roll Dice by Metallic Dice Games to offer an exclusive discount on one of their gorgeous dice sets that we've fallen in love with because of their satisfying weight and, let's just be honest, sparklies not to mention their impeccably constructed dice accessories. In one word, velvet. Visit fanrolldice.com, that's F-A-N-R-O-L-L-D-I-C-E dot com, and use our discount code NIGHTLIGHT for 10% off any new additions to your dice hoard. A portion of your purchase will come back to us and help support our shows. So go to fanrolldice.com with the discount code NIGHTLIGHT to get 10% off of any additions to your dice hoard. Hi, I'm Tanya Thompson, horror writer and creator of Nightlight, a horror podcast featuring creepy tales from black writers all over the world. This week, we've got a double treat for you. First, a conversation between Eden Royce, author of Episode 2, Bask of the Red Death, and I about Abby, a black exploitation film about a church-going woman who becomes possessed by a trickster. On Friday, we're going to bring black exploitation to the podcast world with a story from the legendary Slenderman creepypasta from a black horror perspective, so make sure that you are subscribed so you don't miss it. Thanks to Michelle, Borenchat, and Robbie for joining the Nightlight Legion and helping to fund this episode. Borenchat, that's a great name, by the way. You too can join the Nightlight Legion and keep getting special episodes like this one and last week's True Fright. Just go to patreon.com slash nightlightpod to join us so that we can keep paying black writers and promoting black horror. And now, our conversation about Abby. Hi, we're here today with Eden Royce, author of Bask of the Red Death, that's episode two for new listeners, and an upcoming novel called Tying the Devil's Shoestrings that will be out in 2020 that we cannot wait to read. Eden, how are you? I'm wonderful. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Uh, It is a nice day here in Central Texas. Does it feel nice in England? It is a lovely day here in England. I am actually toward the end of my day here. I know you're probably just starting yours. Yes, yes. It is 930 in the morning here. um, And I'm not an early riser. (laughs) (laughs) But I appreciate you rising early for this. It is uh, 330 here in the afternoon. Awesome. So we agreed to watch the exportation movie, Abby, which is kind of a, a lot of people say it's a knockoff of The Exorcist because that's kind of the point of exportation, right? Is for it to be sort of like a quote unquote black replica of another film that was really successful at the time. And actually there was this big issue with this one where Warner Brothers actually sued after they made like $4 million in the box office off of this movie. Yes. They, they sued and basically halted all distribution and showings of Abby. So it's like super hard to find. Um, you can watch it on YouTube for free, which is great. Um, but, you know, getting like a DVD of it or anything like that is really hard because all distribution had to stop um, after the lawsuit. So I'm curious, um, why, why did you want to choose Abby as the movie we discussed? As we mentioned um, or as I mentioned to you before, I do love black exploitation horror. So I was just listing movies when we were messaging back and forth about what movie to choose for this chat. And at one point I thought, oh, I'm just dumping way too many films on her. And <laughs> well, hopefully this won't be the only time we chat about films. No, 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 we're going to do this often. But I wanted to choose Abby opposed to uh, JD's Revenge or Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde or Scream, Blackula Scream, because number one of the similarities between it and The Exorcist, which is, I think, a very widely recognizable movie for horror lovers and non-horror lovers alike. 
just so we can compare and contrast a little bit more closely what black exploitation horror I think we're trying to do at the time. Mm-hmm. And maybe at another date, pick something that's, I'm going to use the term less derivative, even though I believe that um, the court case went in favor of the director of Abbey, from what I understand. But I think having a parallel between the black exploitation horror movie and another widely recognizable movie, I think just would sort of aid and smooth the first conversation about black exploitation horror and what it meant and means to the genre then and now. Yeah, I think that's an excellent choice. See, you're brilliant. Brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) So, so tell me, you know, you said you have a lot of views about black exploitation horror and you know, this, this movie in particular, and you know, you kind of wanted to use this as a jumping off point to talk about black exploitation. What, what is it that you like about black exploitation horror? Well, when I was growing up, I was one of those kids that did love horror and dark movies. And at the time, that was seen as a rarity in my group of friends and my group of kids that I went to school with. So there was, I always had this idea when I was very, very young that Black people don't like horror. Your life is horrible enough. Why would you like horror? (laughs) Right. (laughs) And I just felt... I can't be the only one or my family can't be the only family that sits around on Sunday afternoons and watches these um, hammer horror film marathons Mm -hmm. um, on television and, you know, castles and Misty Moors and all that other sort of stuff where I just loved that uh, gothic-y atmosphere. Not necessarily so much the slasher type films, but um, movie monsters and those types of films were, were more my speed. And knowing that at some point there was a group of Black people that thought, we love these movies. We love these horror movies, and yet we're so rarely represented in them. We don't get to participate. We don't get to play around as characters or as actors or as writers or directors with this genre that we absolutely love. So right. what can we do about it? And I, I, that was what enamored black exploitation horror to me. Because is it perfect? No. Yeah. Um, is, <laughs> as we will discuss in a moment. Yes. Um, lots of these films are sort of plagued with, with different issues and problems. But it doesn't mean that, that I love them any less. Because I recognize them for what they are. They're an attempt for Blacks who were not typically featured in these horror movies, or if they were featured, killed very early on, killed very quickly, or killed in the most violent ways. I definitely agree that um, that's how Black exploitation was, was born. But I wonder if, you know, a lot of people look at Black exploitation as kind of like cheesy horror movies, because they're all like low budget horror movies, you know, out of necessity. Because, you know, the studios would not pay for a quote-unquote black movie to be developed um, with the same budget as something like The Exorcist. So, you know, a lot of people, I think, feel that black exploitation horror is is something that, that doesn't really represent the full range of creativity that black people have to offer. And as a result, kind of diminishes the view and the perception of the value of Black people as writers, directors, creatives. What do you think about that? I think that coming from a family where I saw my parents, my mother, I saw her excitement coming from the theater, having seen a movie where there were Black people on the screen, where we had the major roles, where possibly the director or the writer people behind the camera were actually black people mm-hmm. and hearing a sort of sense of not just excitement, but even a, a touch of awe that we were able to create this. Is it the most polished thing ever? No, it isn't the most polished thing ever, but there is a empowerment that comes from seeing yourself on the screen or seeing someone create a piece of art that 
is so representative of them that you don't necessarily look past the imperfections, but you appreciate it for what it is. We as Black people are incredibly creative people. And I think we have a tendency to be able to use what's at hand and use what we have to create lingering works. Um, A film like Blackula that was not the highest budget movie in the world consistently makes Halliwell's top 500 movies you must see before you die. Mm -hmm. Is it a perfect movie? As we've said, it isn't. But there is such strength in the cinematography. There's such strength in a lot of the of the dialogue that it is, to my knowledge, one of the only black exploitation movies that has reached those heights. So I don't think that it necessarily needs to be representative of all people, of all black people. Um, I don't think in order to be important that it needs to um, be of the most perfect quality. And it doesn't necessarily need to be um, touted as that. Right. Because I think that there are people that do enjoy lots of cult films. And cult films are, a lot of them, especially the horror ones, are known for being cheesy. And that's part of their charm. Right. Right. And I mean, there, there are my mainstream, you know, quote unquote, white people have cult films and you know they're celebrated and you know like if you watch them you're kind of cool you know maybe considered a hipster um you know people don't kind of look at you crazy like why are you you know watching these cheesy movies you know there's whole followings behind them and fandoms but you know when it comes to black exploitation you know the feeling is 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 very different you know it's just oh that's a cheesy movie and it's very difficult for those movies to, you know, quote unquote, transcend blackness, which is, that's a whole nother conversation right there where <laughs> I'm not going to touch that right now. For other reasons, there, there isn't that love in the black community for black exploitation horror and to a larger extent our black exploitation films. We don't tend to embrace the cultness or if you want to use the term, the cheesiness, we don't have those midnight showings where people get together and look at these films. So a lot of times in isolation watching this movie, you might sit there and go, what in the world is this? But when you sit there in a room with six other people, eight other people, you feed off of their responses and you feed off of their energies And I know I've watched a movie by myself and then watched it with a group of friends and had a completely different experience. Absolutely. Um, You know, when I watched Get Out, I watched it, I I was there on opening night at the Alamo Draft House. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the Alamo Draft House, um, they've gone viral a couple of times because they kick people out for like any transgression, you know, about talking or anything during the movie. They're super serious about it because they're super serious about movies. But that was one movie where like you there were groans in the audience you know you could hear where all the black people were <laughs> in the audience because you know we'd be like mm-hmm, or uh, uh, don't do it don't do it and you know it was funny because like nobody complained about it because it it added to the experience and you know i think i, I think that you've hit on something there that you know there's something about watching movies with a bunch of other people that sort of heightens the experience. And I think, you know, with a lot of these movies being older and, you know, not available on streaming, um, like a lot of the more recent movies, you know, one, they're a little bit harder to to get and to watch. Um, but also they're just they're not they're not as widely known by the wider world. Um, and you know, I don't mean like quote unquote mainstream or, you know, by white people or whatever. It's, you know, like, I don't know very many black exploitation movies, you know, I didn't really grow up with them. So most of what I know is come from things I've read online, you know, other conversations I've had with other people or classes I've taken, that sort of thing. And I I really wish people would, um, especially black people, people of color would embrace black exploitation horror a little bit more. I think that there are some 
there's some charming aspects to them. There are also some crazy aspects to them, mm-hmm. which we will get to shortly, I'm sure. Yes. But I think that when you look at horror as a whole and you see the, the themes that tend to run through very popular mainstream horror films, most of exploitation horror does give you a different flavor. It gives you a, a variation on those themes. And it certainly gives you a difference in archetypes as right. opposed to mainstream horror. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with that. And, you know, we're kind of talking about how, you know, black exploitation horror is quote unquote cheesy. But I think that that's the case with a lot of movies from that era as we kind of look back on them today. You know, like if we watch The Exorcist, there are some points within The Exorcist itself where it's kind of like, that's really cheesy. Like, I can't believe that scared people, you know, 20, 30 years ago. There are a lot of movies where they don't necessarily age well, especially when it comes to the horror aspect of it. A lot of times the special effects don't age well, and we get used to a certain amount of style and a certain amount of spit shine on our movies. And I think going back and watching something from 1974, which is when Abby was released, on Christmas Day, I might add. Yes. (laughs) Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. You get a, a certain appreciation for what the filmmakers had to use at the time. You know, you look at some of the properties that they had to use. You, you look at some of the, the angles that they had to use. Um, and you kind of get an understanding of how they made things work. And you go to, um, say, a Hitchcock movie that's one of the lesser known ones. Something like Rope, where it is basically filmed in one large room. And some of the camera angles that had to be used, some of the ways people sort of had to stand and position themselves. It's the same in a lot of these black exploitation movies, but you can't always get past the bell bottoms and the butterfly collars <laughs> to, to see that. So when we're comparing Abby to The Exorcist, um, you know, obviously. You, There are a lot of reasons, I think, that they are completely different. Really, the only thing they have in common is that somebody is possessed by a demon. And I I mean, I mean that at a very high level, you know, there, there are similarities in like how the possession works and things of that nature. But, you know, when people say that a movie is a knockoff of something else, which, you know, a lot of people have said about Abby, and I mean, Warner Brothers itself was... You know, like, this is copyright infringement. And, like, it, it, the plot isn't even the same. You know, it's, in my mind, it would be like saying any movie about possession is a knockoff of The Exorcist. I don't really see a lot of the similarities that I, I, th- I guess other people see where they see copyright infringement there. But I'm curious, you know, do you see anything that that makes you feel like, yeah, they kind of treaded a little bit over the line there in terms of copyright infringement. I, I don't see a lot of going over the line necessarily. The similarities that I note, because one of the, the opening is, um, I'm going on this archeological dig. Oh, I've come across this unusual item. Let's see if I can open it. And then all of a sudden, you know, the evil is released onto the world. And that's not, I would say, an unusual opening necessarily. I think one of the other similarities, there are a lot of scenes with her in the bed, but they weren't necessarily, I wouldn't equate them with the exorcist. Um, Jokingly, you know, I said to myself, they had to come up with a a different storyline because no black person is going to let their child be doing all those things that Linda Blair did in in The Exorcist. But no, I I think it it went more along a theme that is very recognizable in the black community, especially the mid-70s black community, where there's a lot of 
church and religion. I appreciate that this was not a, the exorcism that happened. Latin was not used. I, I appreciate that there was a different take on, on how we're going to perform this actual exorcism that was in the middle of this lounge slash club. And then, you know, obviously, I believe there was pea soup used in The Exorcist for this spitting scene. And uh, obviously that wasn't used in Abby. You could obviously tell when she foamed at the mouth that she just took a big sip of hydrogen peroxide. And it just just kind of came foaming out. Well, there were, the possession is the similarity. Um, Even in Abby, there was, there were moments of possession and there were moments where she was herself before it fully took hold. And you didn't get any of that with the exorcist. It was just all of a sudden this possession has firmly taken hold and you didn't get a lot of her up and about and doing normal things. And then all of a sudden snap. And I think stylistically like a reason behind, I think, you know, a child being possessed is more horrifying. So you don't necessarily need to show what they were like before as a contrast, because we kind of have this mental model for, you know, children are innocent and et cetera, et cetera. And that was one of the the things that that I noticed in Abby. They made her out to be this incredibly perfect person. Oh, you've just gotten your certificate to be a marriage counselor, and you're a youth pastor, and you sing on the choir. Right. (laughs) You're like super church lady. Yes. And it was just like, oh, she's this perfect person, of which none of us are. But um, it was this absolute good and absolute evil. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and I and I think there was that that perfect archetype that they were trying to to fit her in as ideal wife, ideal preacher wife, to be more specific about it. And I wonder how much you know. What one of the issues that I have with the movie, like overall, I think it was a good movie. But you know, when we're talking about things that you know weren't perfect about it. I, I think that's one of my biggest problems is that I feel like Abby didn't have a lot of dimension to her, you know, aside from this possession, even, even the possession I think was, you know, fairly non-dimensional, but, you know, for someone to be so perfect and, you know, they're, you know, so involved in the church and they show her mother, you know, saying something, I can't remember exactly what it was, but, you know, at the beginning you can see like her mother is very pious as well. And, um, you know, it's just the whole family is very, very godlike, um, you know, like model Christian sort of thing. I think that almost took away from the drama that we could have had in this movie if if Abby had had more dimension to her, if it maybe had been more confusing, like what's actually her versus what's the possession Um part of her because it was very clear, you know, when she was saying something that was was out of character, which I think is important, but at the same time, if you're left wondering about a couple of little phrases here and there that were kind of bad but not like really bad, then you know, I I think that would have sort of elevated the film a little bit. I agree with you on that. Um I think a big for me, a big part of that is Abby's archetype is such a weighty one because it is this she's she's got on her shoulders the expectation of black womanhood mm-hmm. you know which is we're going to be the best wife eventually the best mother we're going to help everybody um that we possibly can without worrying about ourselves um we're a marriage counselor we're a youth pastor both um jobs where you there's an expectation of helping others and and a bit of selflessness Mm -hmm. and I feel like that was what they were trying to put upon her shoulders she is this ideal of of black womanhood and I think that it's a shame that that was how they portrayed her because it doesn't allow her to be just human and just mm-hmm. a person with faults, someone who is a bit more nuanced of a character. Right. Now I wonder, 
you know, I, I've seen a few other black exploitation movies, but I haven't seen a ton of them. How do you think that compares to the image of a black woman in other black exploitation movies? Is it is that something that's kind of common that black women are kind of seen as, you know, having to be perfect? Or are the black female characters typically flawed? In the black exploitation horror that I've watched, the characters tend to be more nuanced than Abby. Abby is um is a is a tough watch sometimes for that reason specifically. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of um sort of in the, in the opposite way, um, a film, Death by Temptation. I don't know if you've seen that. No. Uh, it's another horror film. It's with Kadeem Hardison. And it's a guy who is studying to seminary, and he goes to visit his best friend in New York for, you know, a break or a vacation or whatever. Mm-hmm. And there's this um, very sort of vampy thing fate that's at this bar that ends up um, seducing these men and destroying them as to destroy her. Now, there in that film, the femme fatale, the vamp, is portrayed as the ultimate evil. Um, and she's seducing this incredibly pious young Black man that's about to enter the church. And all he did was stand there and oh my gosh, she just tried to, to tempt him. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes those archetypes are very hurtful and they don't portray us as whole human beings. We're either these evil seductresses mm-hmm. or we are the exact opposite, you know, the um, pure virgin archetype. And I don't think all of exploitation mm-hmm. horror tends to do that. Um, Rosalind Cash in The Omega Man and in, I believe, Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde. Was just, they, she just played much more nuanced characters. And in interviews I've read with her, she purposefully chose those roles. She didn't want some of the roles that she was offered, which made her less of a character, less able to emote, less able to, to be that well-rounded person. Look at Ganja from Ganja and Hess. She is very much her own person and very much her own character. Um, I wrote a review on The House on Skull Mountain, which had several female characters and managed to avoid a lot of those stereotypes and a lot of those tropes. And for me, that movie is an amazing combination of black exploitation horror and gothic horror because it does completely subvert a lot of traditional tropes that you would associate with black exploitation horror and brings it into into its own thing into its own subgenre mm-hmm. which is i think brilliantly done unfortunately the movie wasn't incredibly well received but i think it addresses a lot of things that black exploitation horror in general didn't do it was a non-urban setting which was unusual and the family that's portrayed in the actual film is a very, at least once wealthy, upstanding family. And a lot of black exploitation horror focused either on inner city settings or people that had money. It was from their own hard work. You know, they've studied to become a doctor or they another high paying job that's their scientist or something that allows them to have this money. Ooh, I inherited this mansion on the outskirts of this city. I'm going to go here for my grandmother's will reading. You don't tend to see Black people in films like that. Right. But I do think that's a great idea to watch that one for our next discussion. That sounds like it's very juicy and we'll have a lot to talk about there. So I want to go back to where you were talking about in The Exorcist, you know, Latin was spoken a lot. Whereas in this film, you know, it, the the concept of a demon is not so much a demon from Christianity. Although, you know, I, I think that that was part of the intention was for it to be, you know, very anti-Christian, quote unquote. But this 
you know, they go to this archaeological dig and, you know, it's it's in Africa. So, yeah, they went to Nigeria and, you know, and they're in this cave or whatever. And so the demon that is released, you know, based on, you know, what happens in this cave is Eshu, which is from Yoruba culture, you know, which obviously isn't, you know, like the, the demon of the Bible, so to speak. And, you know, not even necessarily, I feel, a bad spirit or bad presence. You know, I don't, I don't even want to use the word demon here. You know, I, I don't think that, you know, it's more in the sense that it is a demigod that has both good and evil within it, rather than being, you know, just straight up, you know, satanic or something like that. And I'm curious what you think about how African culture was treated as, you know, something that was demonic in this movie? Well, I, I don't think it was necessarily African culture treated as demonic because I think part of it was William Marshall's character, who he was Blackula mm-hmm. and is also brings his gravitas to this movie. He, he uses an, an Nigerian ceremony with Yoruba language to expel the creature. I personally think that the film did a very with not coming out and saying whether this creature is being honest and saying, I am the Orisha Eshu, or I'm pretending to be and using the name. Right. And I think there was some controversy there that, you know, it was never clearly stated. And so people are like, oh, well, it was a wannabe. And some people think, you know, it was Eshu. And you know, I don't know if that was intentional with the film, whether they went, oh, we're going to leave it as, as not really clear and, and we're going to let people figure it out for themselves or if it was an oversight. I mean, I don't, I don't know if we're right. ever going to necessarily know that, but I feel like it was an attempt to bring an understanding of different religions to a black exploitation film because I don't think that a lot of people at the time were familiar with Yoruba. Were familiar with they called it the cult of Eshu. I don't know if that's necessarily the right term, right. but at the time, you know, we're talking mid seventies, early to mid seventies. There was a big resurgence in learning about our African African roots mm-hmm. and. I think that that using that really probably played into the popularity of the film because it did incredibly well, um, despite the uh, difficulties with Warner Brothers. I think using this dig in Nigeria and releasing this creature, whether we want to call it a demon or whatever, because um, Aishu is known as a trickster. So I think they did a very good job with making that sort of nebulous. But I think people want that or Blacks, African-Americans wanted that sort of connection. So they would, wait, you know, we can have stories like this. You know, it isn't just going to insert country here and finding a real demon that is expelled by page after page of of Latin reciting. Mm -hmm. I think bringing it to something that was distinctly Nigerian, distinctly um, rooted in... Nigeria and is is something that I think people at the time could really cling on to. I don't know if that necessarily answers the question perfectly, but I think that it was something that people were wanting to see at that time. You know, we're in the age of embracing natural hair again. We're in the age of black is beautiful. We're in the age where we're looking to embrace a lot of our a lot of our roots and heritage, which we all weren't exposed to growing up. So I think that really appealed to the viewing public. Yeah. And I also read that um, William Marshall wanted to include more aspects of Yoruba culture in in the movie, but, you know, a lot of it apparently got um, either cut out or, you know, he didn't quite get his way, but he definitely, you know, inserted more than was originally intended in the movie. And I think, you know, I, in some ways it seems problematic to me. You know, the, the good in this movie is 
very Christian concept, you know, someone who, you know, goes to church and believes is Jesus as their Lord and Savior and et cetera, et cetera. And then the evil in this movie is the Yoruba culture, which, you know, yes, it's also kind of the savior, you know, when when he dons the dashiki and he, you know, does the exorcism ritual. But in many ways, it just feels problematic to me as an overall archetype of, you know, contrasting Christianity with this culture rooted in Africa that, you know, I think, you know, a lot of people still, and, you know, back then certainly as well, were, you know, not particularly aware of. It almost feels like a warning, like, you know, stay true to your Christian path and, you know, don't wander down this, um, you know, heathen path of Yoruba. I wonder how you feel about that. I think that that mindset of stay on the Christian path, don't stray. I'm using finger quotes and you can't see me, but I am using finger quotes. <laughs> um, don't stray off into um, other paths, other paths, other religions. I think that is still a very widely held view, especially by African-Americans. But I think that there is a contingent that is growing of people that are beginning to at least investigate and learn about religions, more indigenous, there's more interest in conjure magics Mm -hmm. um, than there has been in in years. More people being vocal about certain practices that they've decided to research or embrace in their everyday lives. And yeah, I can definitely see that oh, Christianity is the good thing and, you know, um, African religions are the bad thing. So make sure you stay on the straight and narrow. And that's why I kind of feel like, um, yeah, Yoruba is, it's both things. It's the bad thing and it's the savior, Mm -hmm. but it's the same in the exorcist, you know, with this demon that's also, able to recite lines from the Bible is also able to recite passages from this exorcism text. Um, So it's it's really no different than, I won't say the original, this is really necessarily a knockoff or anything like that, but the same thing happens in the exorcism. That's a good point. That's a good point. That's something I hadn't considered. And I think it is very um, sort of natural for possession movies and things of that nature um, to try and reflect both sides of the coin, the heaven and hell and and God and the devil and Lucifer was an angel at one point. And all of those things are are very reflective of each other. Um, No different than when you look at Greek mythology or other pantheistic religions. Absolutely. Something that's a, a thread, I think, that, that runs through films like that. But I think in a way it might be, that's part of the thing that's unsettling for people that watch movies like this, that there is that fine line. Right. And it's all within the same belief system. And it's you know, easy to be this godly person, you know, whatever God means to you or the characters. And be pulled into something that, you know, is on the dark side, so to speak. You know, in particular, I watch a lot of Latin American movies. And, you know, although possession horror isn't super popular in America any longer, it's still really popular in what I've seen from Latin America. I don't know if that's just, you know, what gets distributed here to America or if that's more indicative of a larger trend within Latin America, but, you know, it certainly speaks to the fact that, you know, American culture has certainly moved away, I think, from being as religious as it used to be, um, whereas Latin American culture is still very deeply rooted in religion, you know, Catholicism in particular. But, you know, I do wonder, in terms of, you know, Abby and looking at Yoruba culture and, you know, the Garnet going to study to go study in Africa and, you know, do this exploratory dig, which, I, which by the way, I think is kind of weird because it's like he's an archaeologist, but then he's also a bishop. You know, it's 
it just I don't know it seemed kind of weird like they had to combine two characters into one there but that's that's a whole nother that's a whole nother conversation we can have later bringing that culture into the movie but then you know also having it be contrasted with Christianity I think you know because because it's two different belief systems and I think that's where I feel like it becomes slightly problematic. You know, Christianity, you know, you've got God and you've got Satan, right? So they're part of the same belief, belief system, you know, good and evil existing within the system. But with Abby, we're kind of pulling from one belief system and another belief system and then contrasting them, which really, it pits them against one another. And to me, at least, it felt like, I don't want to say it felt like it was like preaching to me, but you know, again, I'm, I'm a black girl from the South. So like church is a big deal down here. You know, it's, it's very much, you know, believe in Jesus, you know, very, very, very religious part of the country. So, you know, it it could be that I'm hypersensitive to a lot of that because I, you know, I am not uh, Christian in the sense that, you know, most people would call someone a Christian. And so, you know, part of me is also very sensitive to the fact that, you know, I get or used to get told that I was going to hell a lot just because I didn't believe, you know, in the same things that most Christians believe in. And, you know, that's a whole nother conversation (laughs) there to have, you know, the Christian church and blackness and, and all of that. But I think, you know, for me, that's what I took away from this movie was that, you know, you're supposed to be church going and you're active in the choir and active in the church. And even if you do those things, something can still take hold of you. So you can be pious, you can be the perfect Christian, but you are still weak when it comes to a greater evil, if that makes sense. I feel like I explained that poorly, but. No, I I feel like we are all humans and as humans, we are um, fallible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it goes back to, you know, what we were talking about earlier of here's this archetype of um, strong black woman. Here's this archetype of um, pious black woman. And it's almost like we're not, allowed to have any failures or transgressions but no i'm i mean i'm from the south as well so i'm very familiar with um what you were saying as far as it doesn't necessarily feel like a um moral but um a caution and in that way it maybe is because so much of our oral storytelling history is that it's cautionary tales. And that is part of the the tradition that I grew up with. Um, It's a survivalist tradition, you know, where you would sit around and you would tell these stories to other people, to kids um, as a warning to keep them from, going certain place, certain people. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a way of protecting and preserving those you cared about. And in that way, again, I don't know if this was intentional or not, but it does feed into our oral storytelling tradition here as African-Americans and as people that were brought to the Americas um, for chattel slavery. That is something that's still has a stronghold in my culture, the Gullah Geechee culture, um, that oral storytelling tradition. And a lot of those stories are cautionary tales. And this kind of brings up a good point here is on one hand, you could view it as a cautionary tale of, you know, be, be this good Christian person and surround yourself with good Christian people and you will be okay. But Another view of it is being divorced from our African roots as African-Americans is, 
you know, something that's equally cautioning against. It's, you know, you don't want to not know where you came from. You don't want to be unaware of those cultures because then you're susceptible to, you know, the bad quote unquote things in those cultures. And that, you know, it's, it's dangerous of us to be ignorant of our African roots is something I feel like you could also take away from this movie. I think that certainly is a takeaway. Going back to why uh, William Marshall's character was both a bishop and an archaeologist, which is, granted, seems like a very unusual combination. I think part, you know, I I do understand why they had the need to do that because they needed to, they needed his character to have a certain strength of belief, if you will. Right in order to perform the ceremony, but he also had to have the knowledge of the ceremony and what the creature was and the language and all of this, Um, which I think he, he as consummate thespian that he was, um, managed to pull off quite well. But when you look at some of the other aspects of the film, you know, going into the 70s-ness, I think, as you mentioned earlier, a lot of films from this time period, people think, oh God, it's just cheesy just because of what people wore and the fashion and the phraseology um, that a lot of people used. I think that plays a lot into campiness that people see movies of that era, exploitation films specifically, because a lot of our fashion was a bit more expressive, if you'd like to use that term. But I feel like there is sort of a, a fun and lightheartedness to certain aspects of the movie. Um, but then there are also disturbing elements. There's a lot of slapping in the movie. She, when she's possessed, she slaps a lot of people. <laughs> she does. <laughs> she slaps a lot of men. You know, I, I don't think she slapped any women. There was this theme almost of emasculation in how she treated her husband specifically, but the other men that, that she encountered. And yeah, I think there is a lot that you can sort of read into the movie as far as um, the religion aspects of it. But I think there's also sort of um, almost a twisting into it a, a misogyny as well. Oh, this woman's just run amok and she's sleeping with lots of people and she's slapping men and doing all these other things. And there's this, we've got to get her out of, you know, under control Right. Because she's going around and just giving it's it to like whoever she wants. Yeah. Yes. Oh my God. You know, that sort of thing. So there's this um, mentality of, and I, you see it also in Death by Temptation as well. And part of the reason I, I do wish that we had more Black women writing these types of, that those themes would feature less in film i feel like we absolutely absolutely need that i mean it's not just black exploitation movies or you know quote unquote black movies but you know just in general when a woman is out of control in a movie when she wants to be seen as you know a bad person you know it's they make her a whore and like, there's no other way for a woman to be bad. Like, that is, that is the worst thing you could possibly be as a woman is, you know, someone who is sexually promiscuous and, you know, who, who looks at a man and is like, I want to, you know, sleep with that man. And they act on it rather than, you know, playing hard to get or, you know, whatever in particular. So that is something I felt was kind of problematic about the movie. Like, you know, at one point when she's first becoming possessed, like she's cutting chicken. And like, she's cutting chicken like she's in a porn movie. You know, like she's licking her lips and, you know, it's very sensual. And then, you know, like she stabs herself with a knife or whatever, or cuts herself. But yeah, I mean, I feel like anytime we wanted, anytime it was shown that she was transitioning into this, this thing that was possessing her, like she was licking her lips and being very sensual. And, you know, that, that is what made her evil. Well, that and these really crazy thick eyebrows they put on her. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was weird. Like, I, I looked at that and I was like, she didn't have those eyebrows before, did she? And I, you know, I, it, it took me a while to catch that. I, you know, I saw it and I was like, I feel like that wasn't like that before, but was it? And, you know, at the end when like she's actually exercised of, you know, this demon or whatever you would call it, 
you know, her eyebrows are still all caterpillary. <laughs> That's a word. And when she was possessed, she also had that 70s pimp laugh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and the dubbed over voice, like they didn't even have her doing her voice, like somebody else was doing it. And you could tell like sometimes. But what really tripped me out in this whole movie, like, you know, I'm watching this movie, trying to be serious about it, you know, because I'm writing thoughts down, you know, things for us to talk about. But then she gets put in the psychiatric hospital um, because they can't figure out what's wrong with her. You know, they run all these medical tests and they're like, she's fine. She's just crazy. Um, And she's in, you know, she's in her room or whatever. And then, you know, next thing you know, like she's walking down the hall, like she's fully dressed and she's got her purse. She, (laughs) she grabs her purse to leave the hospital and she's like hitting people with the purse and everything and I'm like oh my god that's the blackest thing ever like she grabbed her purse to escape the hospital and I'm telling you she went on just this rampage of slapping people out of her way she did just really really crazy and the doctors see her down the hallway and she's running away and escaping I mean it, it it shows for me um sort of these images of women that were put into asylums because they just had general hysteria, you know, anything physically wrong with them. So they just, you know, you know how women get, we just need to, you know, put her away in isolation for a while and forget about her. But yeah, there was this, she was on the table and she was in this hospital gown. And then the next thing you know, she's storming out of this room, you know, With her purse. With her purse. <laughs> and her jacket. Like, I mean, she was fully dressed, like, nice. You know, she she, she looked like she was ready to go out somewhere. <laughs> Honestly, it looked like she had a business meeting at the end of that hallway. Or yes. <laughs> yes, she did. So purposeful. I mean. Like she put herself together to escape the hospital. <laughs> like because, you know, the priority isn't just leaving the hospital. Right. You got to look good doing it. the hospital and looking pulled together. Yes. But later when she says, um, you know, when they're like, did they let you out of the hospital or something like that? She's like, all I can say is no one stopped me. (laughs) (laughs) I think that was the single greatest line in the whole movie. Like, she's telling the truth. No, (laughs) No one stopped her, but that's not. It was so classic. And the thing that was so funny was by the time that scene happened, She'd already gotten home, changed clothes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she was wearing that white coat. Yeah. She was wearing the white coat when they came and she said, oh, no one stopped me. Yeah. (laughs) That's the priority to leave leave the hospital, get home, change into a a white trench coat or something. Yeah. Because you know that your husband's father is coming to exercise the demon from you. And, you know, this is a more suitable outfit. Honestly, I thought the first time I saw this movie, I thought she was going to flash someone. Yeah, I thought so too, because it didn't look like she was wearing anything under it. Right, because there was there was no dress or anything peeking out from the bottom, even when she sat. Right, and I oh god, she's going to flash someone. I was so sure of it, but turned out that she just you know she did have some little dress underneath it or whatever. But oh my god, it was so extra. And then the scenes in the lounge of these people dancing that was just faux soul train line. It was, it was a lot. That is one thing that really appealed to me about the movie is, you know, it had this, you know, yes, it was a horror movie, you know, in the sense of it being scary. No, but you know, then again, like I've watched The Exorcist and it wasn't scary to me, but you know, my mom, you know, talks about it. She was terrified when it first came out. Um, But I feel like she... Part of part of the thing is like her wardrobe changes and you know her carrying the purse and like they it seems like they eat chicken for every meal like it just it seemed like they were trying to be extra black with it was extra but black I, but I loved it I loved it's it great. even that um opening music which was like black James Bond was it yes. was just really surreal and right. yeah it was absolutely super black I mean one of the boxes that she carried when they moved into the new house was like um, like a Revlon relaxer box. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's just really extra. Right. And they took a break from unpacking and just had a bucket of KFC. It was just yeah. super... It was great. But, you know, you know, you say something about the relaxer, and it reminds me that, you know, at one point they showed a picture of her, and she had natural hair. And, you know, by the time she's possessed, you know, she's definitely, you know, used a relaxer. 
on her hair. So, you know, that that kind of brings me back to, you know, the, the whole, you know, stay in touch with your roots. And, you know, she, she strayed from her roots and that's why she was vulnerable, you know, to the to this evil. I don't know. Just that was a thought that struck me while I was watching that. Well, while I was watching it, I was looking at it, especially the shower scene, because mm-hmm. she's obviously wearing a wig in yeah. this movie. Yeah. Um, and it is it is a very sort of, you know, um, 70s synthetic wig. Oh, yeah. And during the shower scene, I went, is this hair going to get wet? <laughs> <laughs> I know. And like she was in bed and she didn't have a bonnet or anything. And I was like, I don't know. And I'm sitting here going, okay, she's taking a shower. Is she just, she's not wearing a shower cap. Is she going to try and wet this hair? Yeah. Because was that what the demon's going to make her do? <laughs> Get her hair wet. Speaking of showers, at one point, um, her husband comes out and he's like quoting this Bible verse. He's quoting from Song of Songs. To, and I'm just to like, seduce her. <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, you're going, um, what? Yeah, I was so confused by that. You know, I was like, is that like, people don't really do that, do they? Like, they don't, you know, come out quoting, like, a sexy Bible verse to no. <laughs> seduce their partner. And this, like, white towel around his hips. Yeah, a tiny white towel. A tiny By white towel. Was, like, that was like a face towel. Like, he wasn't even <laughs> using a regular towel. It's like... And you couldn't help but go, is this traditionally how you guys food? Yeah. And you just quote, you know... Yeah. It's like we're in the shower about, you know, and thinking honey about your lips or something. Yeah. You know, just, does she usually just smile and just be like, ooh? Okay, yeah. Is, is that how it usually goes down? Yeah. Like that was a super, super weird thing for me. I was like, wait a minute, is there something going on with him too? And His entrance was very confident with this line. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He thought he was going to get some. And it, yeah, I I was so confused by that. I thought something was going on with him. And I was just like waiting for like there to be some weird thing with the demon hopping between them or, or something. But that was that was super, super weird. That and this Star Trek original series falling. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was so like, you know, brief for impact. And just the way these people did these exaggerated falls and and everything it was just she's like throwing people across the bar and yes (laughs) those are parts of the things that i love about black exploitation movies and black exploitation horror in general because it is extra it is over the top so extra they were just things in that movie because the first time i saw it i thought her husband looked like i am the love boat i mean there were just little tidbits of things that were so, um, such hallmarks of the time. The mustache, the clothes, the music. Yeah, I mean, it was a great movie. Uh, I would totally watch it, watch it again, you know. Like you said in the beginning, there are aspects of it that aren't the best, but it's a low-budget movie. You know, there's, there's certain things you just, you know, you can't do in a low-budget movie because you don't have the money do it and you know the fact that i think you know major studios weren't going to back anything like this they weren't going to put any money into this you know limited what they were able to do but black people are so resourceful we are amazing and we can do so much with so little and the fact that they accomplished you know as much as they did with this movie i think it cost them a hundred thousand dollars to make and before Warner, warner brothers came and you know slapped them down or whatever it made four million dollars in the theaters so i mean it was you know pretty profitable movie you know for the time and i don't think that that was just because you know people had watched the exorcist and they were hungry for another possession story you know like yes you know the movie was certainly created you know in some ways to ride the coattails of you know these these major films that were out you know and that's i think part of why some of it is maybe not done as well as the director or the actors would have liked because, you know, they're on a very short timeline as well. You know, it's low budget, short timeline because they're trying to get it out quickly so that they can sort of capitalize off of that audience. But at the same time, I don't think that, I don't think that that is why it was so successful. I think that it contributed to it, but I think that it being such a distinctly, black film 
about possession, it's a good film all on its own. It stands on its own. You know, if the ne- if the exorcism had never come out, then maybe people wouldn't take a chance on it, but it's a good movie. I also think it just shows that black people's love of horror isn't something recent. And if you are a lover of horror, if you are an African American lover of film, I think that choosing some of these black exploitation horror films can be enlightening number 1, uh recognizing recognizing yourself, recognizing your people mm-hmm. in a film is such a is such a great thing and imagine what it was like for people like my parents seeing movies like this where most roles for African-American people were um, mammies or maids or prostitutes and seeing a movie where we were pretty much almost every character in the film. And it didn't have to be a drama. It didn't have to be about slavery. It didn't have to be about that. It could be a horror movie. Gasp. Mm -hmm. Right. Oh my gosh. I mean, really, when she grabbed that purse to leave the hospital, like I felt seen at that moment. (laughs) And you just know she had candy at the bottom of that purse. Oh, you know she had some starlight mints. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So was there anything else that you wanted to talk about, about black exploitation or this movie in particular? Um, I can't think about anything else, but um, we can do this again with another film. Excellent. I would love to, love to. This was a lot of fun and, you know, it was a great movie to watch. You know, like I said, like the whole, you know, leaving the hospital with the pursing was <laughs> was worth the entire movie. It was the best. And no one stopped me. Yeah, no one stopped me. That should be your catchphrase going forward. No yes. one stopped? No one stopped me. <laughs> I have to make some nightlight t-shirts and say, no one stopped me. No one stopped me. That would be great. (laughs) Do that. So yeah, we should definitely do this again. Um, You know, watch another movie and talk about it. I'm even willing to wake up early for it. Um, It's been a blast talking with you. Thank you so much for uh, suggesting this movie and for joining us today. Um, Again, uh, Eden has a story. uh, It's episode two, Bask of the Red Death. Uh, on Nightlight. And uh, she also has an upcoming novel, Tying the Devil's Shoestrings, that will be out in 2020. And we're definitely going to keep you guys updated on that um, as it starts to near publication, because we are definitely going to want to buy lots of copies of that. Like, I'm already like, okay, I'm going to, I already know three people I'm going to buy copies for. (laughs) That would be fantastic. (laughs) And it's a middle grade novel, right? It is a middle grade, yeah, middle grade, but it will have some spooky parts and it will have some Southern Conjure parts and it'll just be lots of fun. Yes, I'm excited about it. I'm like, I mean, I'm already going to buy five copies pretty much. So that sounds Um, amazing. (laughs) So yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. Is there anything else that you have coming out soon? Any short stories or anything that we can be looking out for in the meantime? Um, I do have um, some short stories coming out. One will be coming out in January, actually. It will be in print. But I have a couple things that are coming out that I actually don't know the dates of. I'm hoping to be able to announce them soon on my Twitter feed. I'm starting to get emails about, ooh, final edits are coming through and all of that good stuff. So hopefully that means these stories will be out in the world very shortly. Excellent. And can you tell everyone your Twitter handle so that they can follow you I am at Eden Royce on Twitter and I am at Eden Royce books on Instagram, which I am not very good at posting on, but I'm trying to get better. I am on Facebook also at Eden Royce because, you know, consistency. So um, I do my best to um, post any updates on short stories, acceptances, appearances, um, because I will be appearing um, at Worldcon. Um, awesome. 2019 in Dublin. So Ooh. very, very excited about that. My website is EdenRoyce.com, which hopefully will be going on through a slight makeover shortly with some new updates and some new releases. Thanks, Thanks again, again so, so much for joining us today. Hope you have an excellent day. You do the same. Thanks. Thank you. Yay. 
I always have a blast chatting with Eden. She's so inspiring, and to be perfectly transparent, she's easily my favorite author in Black Horror right now. Make sure you check out her other stories. Head on over to our website at edenroyce.com for a complete list. That's E-D-E-N-R-O-Y-C-E.com. A link is also in the show notes. Thanks to Jen from the Skiffy and Fanty podcast for editing this episode and for interviewing me on her podcast. So you should hop over right now and check out the Skiffy and Fanty episode um, that should be out by the time this episode comes out. It might be out one day later. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a brand new story. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish.